Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, why thousands of human remains belonging to Arizona tribes are still in museums. The Native American Grave Protection and Repatriation Act, or NAGPRA, has been in effect for more than 30 years. It ended the practice of buying and selling native remains and the tribal objects buried with them. But it was also supposed to remove them from museums and government control and get them back into the hands of the tribes who claimed them. While many have been returned, a federal database of items that fall under NAGPRA rules shows that at least 5,600 sets of remains that can be traced to Arizona have yet to be returned. In addition, nearly 16,000 funerary objects also remain in the hands of museums or public entities across the country. To see a map of all the places that still have Native American remains or funerary objects belonging to Arizona tribes, visit our website. So why does this problem remain so prevalent decades after NAGPRA was put on the books? Zach Ziegler begins our examination of the issue. Through the 1980s, efforts to return Native American ancestors who were exhumed without tribal consent were rare and mainly done at the state level. Then in 1990, the federal government decided that repatriation was uh, the policy of the United States government. That's Melanie O'Brien, the current NAGPRA program manager. In November of 1990, Congress passed the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, or NAGPRA, and it was signed into law by President Bush on November 16th. Once NAGPRA was enacted, museums and various government groups began combing through their archives. They assembled a massive database and notified tribes so that remains could be returned to them, which was supposed to take about five years. So why do so many items remain unreturned almost 30 years past that deadline? One reason is there may be little information about where the remains came from or which tribe they belong to. For example, at the Charlotte Hall Museum in Prescott, the database says it has one individual and one associated funerary object. Jackson Medell is Charlotte Hall's curator of collections and exhibits. Sometimes you do encounter those objects where you're like, how did this happen? Who made the decision to say, yes, we will take this thing? Uh, and that, that sort of applies both to, you know, what we're talking about with, with NAGPRA uh, materials as well as just, you know, regular things in the collection. The database says both the remains and the funerary object are from Arizona, but details beyond that are unknown. Charlotte Home Museum is nearing its centennial, and collections manager Alana DeBusk says staff today are dealing with issues common to small, old museums. Unfortunately, sometimes you don't know a lot just based on the information that was collected when those individuals were collected. And that is what we are dealing with here. She says the items in question have been in the collection for decades, dating back to when staff were not trained professionals and documentation practices were lacking at best. Especially like when museums started, it was just collect as much as you can. They just collected what they could. Why? I don't know. The museum says it has invited local tribes to examine the remains, but has had no luck in identifying which tribe they're connected to. Medell says that makes establishing the originating point of the remains and funerary object incredibly difficult, if not impossible. And even a theoretical blank check 
probably wouldn't solve the problem. No amount of money is going to give us the name of the people who brought these things to the institution. NAGPRA program manager Melanie O'Brien outlines another possible issue. Museums and other entities are not required to do any new research. Congress did not put any higher standard of identification in the law. It is a simple process by which information that is available should be used to identify the present day people that are connected to past people. The process hinges on a legal term saying that museums must present what info they have and make a good faith effort. But by now, those good faith efforts are decades old and the people who made them may have moved on. A lot of times these collections, especially of Native American ancestors, tended to be special projects, special collections that only a small group of people maybe knew about. And once those people retired or left the institution, there may not be information. AZPM talked with one curator who had such a problem. He was hired by a Texas museum a few months earlier. He was surprised by our email and couldn't find information beyond what we found in the NAGPRA database, despite it having been gathered at some point. While time has changed how many institutions deal with Native American remains and funerary objects, that's not the only cultural differences that Native people see. Mamuelito Wheeler is the director of the Navajo Nation Museum. He's a member of the tribe and previously worked in non-Native museums also. There are museums out there that are very influential, that are about Native people, but they're not controlled by Native people. And, you know, for better or worse, you know, that that's how it is. He says firsthand cultural experience could help many museums, but beyond that, how these large institutions treat remains and repatriation is important. They are in, in the driver's seat for people's opinions that are being formed about us as Native people. And he says many are doing a good job navigating a complicated system. The Navajo Nation Museum is not in the NAGPRA database, though Wheeler says private parties have asked to donate remains or funerary objects in the past. So if any items that come by the museum here and they're, I feel, NAGPRA related, I will ask them to contact the Navajo Nation Heritage and Historic Preservation Department. And other museum staff AZPM spoke with said they too have routine interactions with similar tribal offices. But hurdles remain, ranging from expenses to the massive backlog of remains. For some institutions and tribes, those number in the thousands. NAGPRA program manager O'Brien says the Department of the Interior is currently in the process of revising its rules around repatriation in the hopes of finishing the job that started nearly three decades ago. The process for regulations and, and regulatory change requires a period of public comment, which concluded at the end of January. Once the rule is final, if, if that time frame continues, then yes, we would hope that for the Native American human remains, this process would have an end date. The end date as currently proposed would be two and a half years from when the new rule goes into place. And she says Congress allocates millions of dollars each year for repatriation. 
Wheeler says the problems with this issue go beyond those governed by NAGPRA, though. There's still the matter of private collections, which don't have to report to NAGPRA or can skirt the law and hope to go unnoticed. Another listing in the database from Arizona is an example of that issue. One of the remains in possession of the Missouri Department of Natural Resources got there after decades in private hands. The state ended up with the item in 2009 after it was discovered by a St. Louis area police officer. A spokesperson for the police department said an officer saw the remains after he was invited into a person's home while investigating an unrelated robbery. The person handed them over and told the investigator that he had legally bought them at the Tucson Gemin Mineral Show in the 1980s. No charges were filed. There are plenty of places out there that still have sacred objects, burial objects. They got them, quote unquote, legally, which I mean, I think any burial item is that you possess is illegal, period. That's my opinion. For The Buzz, I'm Zach Ziegler. When the Native American Grave Protection and Repatriation Act was written, its authors included people across a variety of groups. Suzanne Schoen Harjo was among those consulted on the writing of NAGPRA. She's Cheyenne and Hidalgi Muskogee and is president of the Morning Star Institute. She received the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2014 for her work on Native rights. Dr. James Riding In is a citizen of the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma. He's also a retired professor of American Indian Studies at Arizona State University, and he's written extensively about NAGPRA. I started by asking them what things were like before the federal law. Well, you couldn't drive down a highway or a back road in the United States without seeing some billboard or some sign that said, see the Indian mummy uh, 200 miles or two miles over here or down by such such and such farm, Uh, Indian skulls, uh, an Indian graveyard exposed, things that, that would have caused an uprising had anyone desecrated the graves of of the townspeople there, the white people, and they just looked at us as possessions. So you had people in museums and federal agencies and private collectors who looked at us as butterfly collections. There are people who just collected Cheyennes or only Pawnees, and there's still some of those who think they own us when we're dead. And that really led us to repatriation law that would get us out of the category of ARPA, the Archaeological Resources Protection Act, where we were and still are under that law, um, the archaeological resources of the United States of America after being dead. We we got it because more and more people were able to understand how wrong it was to dig up grandma and to auction off her shoes and anything she might be wearing and and uh, take pictures of, of her. Well, and then selling her off, potentially. Selling her off, absolutely. And there's still an underground market for human remains. and that that will 
be with us, I think, as long as there are people who believe that they are superior to other people. James, in 2004, in a panel discussion, you mentioned that NAGPRA doesn't provide the repatriation of human remains that are classified as culturally unidentifiable. NAGPRA itself says that groups that hold the remains need only to make what they call a good faith effort to identify them. Are efforts to identify remains that are unknown insufficient? I mean, we have a lot of technology now, including DNA and all kinds of things. In uh, 1970, I visited the um, Smithsonian, the National Museum of Natural History, and walking through the door there, there was a, a shelf of uh, human remains, uh, crania, and they were all Indian and identified by their Indian nation. I had seen that before at uh, Mesa Verde and uh, other places. So, you know, we were just like a, a curiosity. Um, you know, we didn't have human rights. We didn't have burial rights. Um, science uh, had control of, of who we are. That was uh, part of the systemic racism that we fought as we were uh, going through this movement. Um, when I was a college student at UCLA, we really became clear about um, uh, how deeply ingrained those racial attitudes were, but yet they were proclaiming that they were vital to uh, us because they could tell us our history, our stories. And, you know, we have our own oral traditions to tell us that. We have our elders to tell us that. And being an elder myself now, you know, we can uh, tell that to a lot of people, you know, our history. Uh, but that was what we were countering this, uh, this scientific racism. It was so deeply ingrained that the uh, notion of culturally unidentified as written into the law, you know, we always thought that those remains could be identified because they're our, our ancestors and um, would engage, like even uh, as a graduate student at UCLA, uh, the anthropologists, and, and they would say that to us, you know, that they know it's our history. And that uh, even one guy they brought in to talk uh, said that uh, the survival of the world was critical because uh, studying these ancestral remains could avert a nuclear war. And the example he gave was some group in South America that they, through their archaeology, they found pecks in people's heads and they said that it was a form of dispute resolution. So that model could be used to avert a nuclear war. Well, we were thinking, well, would Ronald Reagan or any other president sit there and let uh, uh, a Russian leader get something and peck on his head uh, to resolve these conflicts? You know, if, if our people wanted them to study, fine. You know, a lot of us are opposed to DNA because it involves uh, 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 invasive uh, analysis, destruction of a uh, bone. And, you know, there, there couldn't be benefits from it, like uh, the, uh, um, the ancient one or the Kennewick man was determined to be um, culturally affiliated with the uh, Pacific Northwest uh, Indian groups who claimed him. And a group of scientists filed suit to stop uh, the repatriation by the Corps of Engineers. And um, those uh, scientists won. As that report uh, in uh, ProPublica uh, mentions, these institutions uh, devised arguments to classify as many of those remains as culturally unidentifiable as possible. So they didn't have to repatriate them. Uh, NACRA essentially just set a can up to, to be kicked down the road for this issue to be dealt with. And uh, it has been dealt with, and those remains are supposed to be returned, but we're still seeing this resistance from these institutions. And a lot of uh, these institutions did uh, do the right thing and try to uh, comply with the law. 
but uh, many did not. And so the struggle is still going on. When you talk about that systemic racism, and, and Suzanne, feel free to chime in on this, how much of that is systemic racism and how much of it is just a pure lack of understanding of cultures that the the people involved in, in the museums and the archaeologists just simply weren't brought up in and maybe they don't understand the importance uh, of what they're disturbing. Well, we can look at uh, Franz Broas and uh, his work in the Pacific Northwest. During the daytime, he would collect um, oral traditions and at nighttime, he'd go into cemeteries and steal crania and sell them to promote his research. There's uh, army uh, reports saying that the Indians uh, jealously guard their dead and they'll go to and, and use desecration of the cemeteries in, as an excuse to go to war. So they knew exactly what they were doing. Uh, you know, these are educated people. They were supposed to have studied Indian culture, but you know, the Indians were to consider the other. Once you categorize a people as the other or the savage, you know, you can do anything you want against them and you're justified as a superior people. Structural racism includes individuals who just need to be educated, and it includes people who are monsters and everyone in between. What many of us do is try to educate the educatable and get some sort of accountability measures for those who hide behind lack of education or, or misunderstanding. So we have to look at what what is acceptable in general society to do to one group that's unacceptable to do to another. And you try to appeal to people's sensibilities or their intellect or their common sense. And you come off with some allies and that's great. And there again, it comes back to the individuals. Do the individuals have a conscience? Or uh, if when you're dealing with a person who is a sociopath, but is also an archeologist or a physical anthropologist who works in the field and does not see grave robbing or studying as dealing with actual people. It ju just sees us as non-human or inanimate uh, objects. We're totally objectified. The people who are really dismissive of us won't allow for any other point of view, won't even meet with Native people. And there's a very prominent one, Professor Tim White at um, the University of California at Berkeley. He has the largest collection, which he considers his personal collection, of um, Oleone people. And he won't meet with the living ones. There are more Oleone people at Berkeley in the collection of Tim White than there are living Oleone people in Northern California. It really comes down to they think they're better than other people and they act accordingly. So when you find that that's the group you're left with, that's an unpersuadable group. You, Suzanne, were involved with the passage of NAGPRA. James, you've been involved in this issue for a long time. So now with 
the the benefit of hindsight what in nagpra could have been written better or if you could get it through what how would you amend it and change it to get rid of some of the the shortfalls that you've talked about in it well certainly changing unidentifiable to unidentified and drafting it in such a way that the native peoples would have as much information as the non-native peoples in the holding repositories had. I mean, that's something that James, myself, and just a handful of people who formed a working group on culturally unidentified human remains, we had to uncover plots. There was a plot between the NAGPRA office uh, and the Park Service, or the, some personnel there, and the University of California archaeologist at Santa Barbara, the guy at Berkeley and other places, lots of people in Arizona working at the labs. They had drafted and were going to issue a regulation that said any human remains that had not been identified within 90 days vested in the interest of the holding repository, essentially. Our little working group had to expose all of that. And we were awfully good at what we did. And, and so we were able to force them to digitize the entire process of inventories and to make available the same information that the, that the repositories had to the native peoples. That was huge work that we were doing, and that's not in the law. That's in the interpretation and the way it was done. And you see this as a thread throughout the whole of the process of getting from what we were doing in 67 to actual making of the laws in 1989 and 90, and then the implementation of the laws. We were focused on policy. And we didn't know that if the policy went one way, that through sleight of hand in the regulatory process or just using the federal dollars of that office, uh, the employees of, of repatriation office would take it in another direction, the opposite direction. And that's what our little working group had to uh, counter uh, all by ourselves. So that was the kind of work that we had to do and did, and we're very successful, but there's really no way to legislate honesty. It's hard to really think as fast or as far or as deviously as the people who are looking to gain what they see as their right to have. Let me let James jump in on this, because James, you've written... Uh, some on this pretty extensively on this what what do you see is needs to be done to to make the law better uh you know on face value it's a very good law and it's it's a much needed like suzanne is saying uh you know if if you can't get people to do the right thing then laws are needed one of the problems i saw uh was uh you know like suzanne was mentioning the um the nagpra office national nagpra uh, it was manned by people who were essentially members of the uh, Society of American Archaeology. They seemed to always, uh, all too often, you know, back uh, the other side. 
the uh, those who were the um, the criminals in this whole uh, ordeal. Uh, although National NAGPRA Review Committee did make a lot of good decisions and institutions usually went along with them. But still, though, you know, the power was in the hands of non-Indians. And that was one of the huge issues with NAGPRA I saw was that these institutions that don't have sovereignty could determine cultural affiliation in consultation with Indian nations. Indians only had the right to consult and share their views. And then these institutions could accept or reject, you know, Indian views. Just too much of uh, Western thought was uh, implemented into this law. Another problem was uh, the lack of uh, enforcement or weak enforcement. NACRA provided civil penalties uh, for institutions that didn't comply, but the NACRA office rarely imposed those penalties. So that's what's needed. One of the problems with NACRA too is that, is that oftentimes the museums get more money than Indian nations to establish cultural affiliation through research. I think that we're in for a long struggle still. NAGPRA was passed in 1990, and you know we're still fighting the same battles, except we've won in a lot of situations. Now we're down to these hardcore institutions, manned by whatever you want to call them, who are still trying to deny us our human rights. This is the kind of thing we're up against, and still, it still is going on. The only difference is that we do have this law and policy to rely on. There are lots of things to change, and we've, we've been trying to do that, but we've been stymied by people, some people on the Hill, because people were afraid to do anything about that. They thought we were just trying to undermine academic freedom or scientific exploration or so on. Thank you so much to both of you for spending some time with us. Well, thanks for doing this uh, program and uh, inviting us to be a part of it. Well, thank you. I'm sorry we gave you such uh, long answers. <laughs> that was Suzanne Schoen Harjo and Dr. James riding in. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, we're examining the Native American Grave Protection and Repatriation Act and how it has worked for Arizona tribes and institutions. We heard from a small museum, but how does NAGPRA work for larger institutions? To learn about that, we spoke with Dr. James Watson, Associate Director and Curator of Bioarchaeology at the Arizona State Museum on the University of Arizona campus. Watson says that when he started at the museum in 2008, it had nearly 9,000 sets of Native American remains. Today that number is around 4,000. I started by asking him how a large museum such as the Arizona State Museum goes about identifying the tribal ties to the remains it has. For the most part, it's all based on context, where those individuals were, were found, were excavated, were recovered from. And often that means that there's an associated archaeological culture we can assign to it, and the connections between the past Native populations in the area and the present Native communities and nations that occupy Arizona. Arizona has 22 federally recognized Native American tribes, and I would like to think that the State Museum has a good relationship with all 22. Um, and so working through the, that relationship between the past and the present and dealing with modern representatives of these tribal nations, uh, that's where we sort of, the, the foundation for identifying where, uh, where the relationships exist and where these 
individuals need to be returned to. So you mentioned before we were recording that sometimes people are cleaning out a house, maybe of a relative or a loved one, and they find human remains. And as we know, in the 1950s and 60s, really up until the 80s, you could buy human remains, and a lot of people did. So those don't necessarily have the context. What's the process? What do you do at that point? So as long as we can determine that they were from likely from Arizona, then we will accept them uh, and with the express purpose of working through the NAGPRA process and facilitating repatriation. Now, if we have more specific contextual information, like this was my grandfather's and he had a ranch out in Suarita, then we can have, based on geographic association, we have a little better understanding of what the likely relationship is between the ancestral individual and modern native communities. And so we can tie those links. If all we know is that it's from Arizona, then uh, what that means is we will work with all of the federally recognized tribal communities in Arizona. So when it comes to repatriation, do you all reach out to the tribal communities? Do they reach out to you? How do you get that process going? Both happens. Uh, in some cases, we've had tribes reach out to us because in, uh, in 1995, we published our inventory to say this is what we have or what we think we have in the museum. But for the most part, we know that those inventories are not 100% accurate because we are an old, large museum and uh, you know databases have evolved over the years. And knowing what we actually have in the building versus what we think we have there's often a disconnect. And so we've got this 10-year plan where we're working through methodically through the, the collections based on geography, really. And so we started in the southern part of the state. The idea is we're sort of moving north because, uh, because we're located in Tucson. The majority of those, the, the collections we have of human remains and, and objects are from this area locally. And then the further north or the further afield we go, the less we have. So from a practical purpose, how do you repatriate remains and funerary objects and things like that, obviously for respect reasons alone, if not a lot of other reasons, you don't put them in a box, drop them in the mail and send them. What's the process? So that all becomes part of the conversation during consultation with the tribes. And so especially once we have a tribe that wants to formally make a claim, then we talk with them and, you know, part of the consultation process is saying, how do you want to do this? And in some cases, some tribes prefer that individuals are separated uh, by age or um, sex categories and say, you know, all males together, uh, all children together, something like that. We go through the process of putting back together the individuals and any and all objects or belongings that they were buried with, because when they were brought into the museum, they were separated and the human remains went to the what we call the bioarchaeological collections, and the objects went to the archaeological collections. The other thing, what's an important step that we also take is uh, checking objects for um, toxins, because especially perishable objects in the past, museum practices for preservation purposes of the, these delicate objects resulted in the use of things like uh, mercury and arsenic. We want to make sure we, we also produce a report to say, look, these objects... They may have, you know, so many ppm of arsenic, for example. So if you choose to handle them, please be careful. So once we do all that and 
we consult with the tribes, then it's any combination of however they want to do it. And it's totally up to them. I would say in the majority of cases, uh, the tribes prefer to send representatives here to the museum. Uh, we have, you know, sort of an exchange and go through the inventory so they can see everything that we've published in the National NAGPRA notices is here and we're, you know, handing back their ancestors and their belongings. And then they take them back to their reservations or museums or wherever their next resting place will be or their final resting place. In some cases, especially with large collections, the tribe has asked that we transport them. In rare cases, we've had the opportunity to assist in the actual reburial. Uh, the consultation happens, we'll often have a signing so that the tribal reps will come, make sure that we're giving them everything that we say, the national notice says, and then we will transport those individuals and their belongings to a location of reburial and often assist with, uh, with the physical reburial. It really, it's a rare occasion for us, but it's really meaningful because you, you sort of get to close the cycle. You said there are about 4,000 or so sets of remains still going through that process here at the museum. According to the database, there are 70 or so sets of remains. You don't know whose they are. They're unidentified. What happens with them, and how do you determine they're unidentified? And is this one of those, you might have to wait for technology to catch up or something? Well, unfortunately, that's not likely a, a reasonable approach because um, all, all of the 22 tribes in Arizona do not want any destructive analysis. So really what we'll do in the end is, like I said, if we have any contextual information of those individuals, then we will consult with those tribes who may you know, have a geographic interest. Otherwise, at, at the end, we will send a letter out to all 22 tribes and say, these are the individuals that we have left in our collections. We think or know that they're from Arizona, but we have no further information. So who, first, who wants to consult on it? And then secondarily, who might want to claim uh, these individuals and uh, repatriate them? This obviously takes staff time and a lot of research. At the end of the day, museums have never been known, with the exception of maybe the Smithsonian or the Herd or one of those, for having a lot of money. How do you pay for all this? Yeah, it is tough, and that's one of the reasons why it's taken us so long to work through. And part of it is also we actually have more individuals than those 4,000 or so. Uh, those are just the, the individuals that belong to the state. We also have collections from federal agencies as well that we are managing their repatriation. But the way that we can do that is the federal agency funds us to, to process their collections because they're responsible under NAGPRA to do that. We're just the repository. Unfortunately, the problem is, is that, yeah, you're right, we, we're underfunded. We have effectively two half-time people dedicated to uh, federal repatriation. And so that's one full person. All right. Well, thanks for spending some time with us. <laughs> of course. No problem. That was Arizona State Museum Associate Director Dr. James Watson. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Zach Ziegler is our producer with production help from Samantha Larned. And a special thanks this week to Phil Howard for his work on our online database of institutions with Arizona tribal remains. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. 
Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.